I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. W. Kamau Bell is a gifted comedian who's taken his comedian's ability to observe and comment on the way we live, and he's used it not only to make us laugh, but to bring us together, or at least to find a way to divide us a little less. I think sometimes people think you're just there to shoot the show and you don't really care about them as a person. And for me, it's like, no, no, we're here because we care about you as a person, and I want you to feel like the show is a fun thing to do. And so it's my job to keep it fun. His program on CNN, United Shades of America, puts him in places a lot of us wouldn't go, like meetings of the Ku Klux Klan, a place where you certainly wouldn't expect an African-American to show up and to hold a dialogue while they burn a cross. I think Kamau is brave in many ways, and I was delighted when he joined us on the show. Kamau, thanks for being on the show. This is great. Uh, you you don't know how great this is, uh, Mr. Alden. I want to no, tell you, don't Mr. say Alden. that. Come on, <laughs> it's, please. It's, it's a surreal experience. When I was heard that you wanted me on your podcast, uh, I just have to. I, I know it's your podcast, but I have to take a moment to be like, I've literally been a fan of yours since I watched television. There was no bigger show in my house than Mash. So, and I know that's go, taking you back quite a way, but I've been watching you since I was too young to know what was going on television. You notice how I'm not stopping you. No, I didn't notice. <laughs> I could have cut in there almost anywhere. It anywhere, but no, no, no. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a huge honor, and I've of course followed your career since then. But it's just uh, you don't imagine when you start in show business that you're going to end up sitting across from somebody who literally helped form your idea of what comedy was. Well, well, that's really kind. Thank you. And and I, I've, I've been following your career for a shorter period of time, but it's really <laughs> impressive, and it's made me want to talk to you on the podcast because you know we talk about. Uh, relating and communicating and you're at like the cutting edge of communicating communicating with the whole culture about the culture it's really a, a remarkable thing you do for the people who don't know i i could describe the show you're doing the united shades of america but would you describe it uh, yeah, it's funny. I think the we're in, we just finished uh, our third season, just aired on CNN, and I think my description of it has changed the deeper we get into it. So, you know, it's really like a conversation with all the different parts of America talking about what has gone wrong. You know, like it's really like from a and from a comedian's perspective because I am a stand-up comedian. I that's my core uh, operating system, but. Uh, when we talk about America, a lot of times we're thinking very narrowly about who an American is. And so the whole idea for the show is to really broaden our perspective of like who is an American and what their stories are. You go all over the place. You go to towns that uh, a lot of us never heard of and you talk to all kinds of people, people in Appalachia. And then you suddenly are talking to the KKK. <laughs> That's the, Now, that has to have been a scary and strange experience, no? Yeah, I mean it was it was really multi-layered because that was the f- that was the pilot episode of the show was me talking so, to the So so in case client. the show didn't get picked up, no <laughs> you could yeah. you could die and nobody would care. Well, I was like, at, least, at least I'll have a story or my yeah. or my descendants will have a story. <laughs> my, my next of kin will have a story about what happened to your dad. Well, he was trying to get a job real bad. You know what impressed me was the there you you meet this guy on a on an empty road at night lit only by headlights. Yeah. And the first thing he says is, now you're disguising my voice, right? Yes. <laughs> Not enough that he's wearing a full tilt hood yeah, yes, yeah. from head to toe, but he doesn't want to. So that, th- th- this, does that say something about uh, how prepared they are to be open about what they have to say and who they are? Well, it's funny, you know, like when you see what happened with many of the you know, I don't, and I know the movement has different names, but it's commonly called the alt right in like the wake of Charlottesville. That like those guys went out there without hoods on, and you could see their faces, and that many of them went home and found out their jobs didn't exist anymore for them. Like they got fired. Oh, is, is because, that, I didn't know that. 
Yeah, a lot of those alt right guys who were, who like the who were seen on TV and in, and in uh, you know in footage and news footage and in pictures like yelling these horrible things went back to their hometowns and got fired because they're like you can't work at the hot dog stand after you did that and literally I'm saying that there was a guy in Berkeley who worked at Top Dog who was photographed in Charlottesville and got fired because like we can't have you here and it's mm-hmm. like the Klan put on the hoods for a reason they knew they couldn't be identified with these ideas as much as they claimed to be proud of them. Those hoods and him wanting to disguise our voice was for, we know this is not appropriate on some level. What were you aiming for as you talked to that guy, for instance? What, were you were you letting him talk and then readying a pertinent question to see how he'd react? Or were you—because you, you, seemed, you seemed kind of forgiving. It wasn't—to me, the—like, let me be clear about this. I had never had that job before that day, you know, the— yeah. the the travel show host goes out and talks to people. And there's also part of this that I tell people. It was also like my first time ever working with that crew. So it was like a, there was all these things happening. Like, am I standing in the right place? Uh, is that is the is the crew? Does the crew like me? They're all white. Are they secret clan members? Like, this is all, like <laughs> You're surrounded. <laughs> yeah. Like I really there's a lot going on that when I look back, I see a guy who's like, I also need this job because my wife's pregnant with our second daughter. Like I see oh, all these things. <laughs> so. There's there's all these things going on, but when I but when I think about what were you trying to do, as a comedian who's traveled around, as a person who's moved, who's lived all over the country, I know that some people know things to be true that other people can't imagine, and the Ku Klux Klan is one of those things. Yeah, yeah, and you know when I said you sounded forgiving, it's not that I would have preferred you to engage that guy on the dark road that night in a debate. I mean, p- part of the whole thing that I'm exploring on this show is to see how people can meet and find one another, find some common place that they can agree on where they see one another's humanity. And you don't get there, I don't think, by yelling at each other. No, and and when people will say they, like, why didn't you hit that person or why didn't you, you know, why didn't you start a fight? And I'm just like, didn't we all see how that worked on Jerry Springer in the 90s? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, like, right. I thought we had gone through that era of television. Like that didn't, you know, that didn't accomplish thing, anything on Geraldo. I mean, I lived in Chicago a long, for a long time. And I remember when Oprah went, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to invite mm-hmm. people on my show just to fight. You know, if you're going to come on my show, I will give you the respect of letting you speak. And so for me, I know there's people in this country, many of them white people, who had no idea the Ku Klux Klan still existed. And I know people in this country, many of them black people, are like, yeah, they're still out there, and we're aware of them, and we keep our eye on them. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was like, and this is true of every episode of the show, there's a group of people who are watching the show going, I know all of this because I'm of this or I'm concerned about this already. But then there's usually a larger group of people watching the show who are like, I had no idea this existed. And that's true whether it's the Ku Klux Klan or whether it's the people who follow the, the Sikh religion, which we did this season, or whether we're talking about people living at the border the larger audience for the show is the people who are like, I didn't know about this. And then the core audience inside of that is people who are like, this is my life or this is my experience. And then their concern is, I hope he gets this right. Yeah. And so for me, yeah. it's like, those are the two things I have to play with is like making sure the bigger audience understands this new group they haven't heard about before, thought about, and then also making sure that the core audience, people who are affected by this, don't think that I'm screwing it up. I'm wondering to what extent you were able to connect to to some of the people who have different backgrounds, and not necessarily people who are antagonistic to you, but just have a completely different background. For instance, when I was on the, the science program, Scientific American Frontiers, I would spend the whole day with the scientists I was interviewing, and I found... I sometimes got closer to them as a person and learned more about their science between the shots, during the Mm -hmm. setups, while the crew was busy getting ready. We'd just be wandering around chatting. Did you have any experiences that were something like that? Yeah, I mean, it's for me, like, it's funny that being the host of the show, which is not even a title I even thought about when I got the show— uh, just but it starts when you when that person shows up to do the interview or when you show up to their house or their place of work to do the interview that there's a lot of times producers want to shield you from that person until they till it starts because they want you to keep everything fresh. But for me, it's super important to walk up to that person, say hello, say thank you. Do you need any water? Somebody get this person some water. And then between the shots, just sort of keep them engaged because yeah. I, I think sometimes people think. You're just there to shoot the show, and you don't really care about them as a person. And for me, it's like, no, no, we're here because we care about you as a person, and I want you to feel like the show is a fun thing to do. And so it's my job to keep it fun. 
Let me ask you a personal question. What does W stand for? <laughs> My dad's name is Walter Alfred Bell, so I am Walter Kamau Bell. There's some argument and dispute between my parents as to whether or not they wanted me to be a junior, but I have a different middle name, so I'm not a junior. And So where did Kamau come from? Uh, I was born in East Palo Alto, or I was, that's where my parents were when I was born. And at that point in the late, in the early uh 70s, late 60s, East Palo Alto was calling itself Nairobi, California, because they wanted to be like uh, Nairobi, Kenya, because Kenya had just had just kicked out the British people and had independent rule. And so there was a strong militant black community in in Nairobi, uh, California, East Palo Alto, that wanted that took on Kenyan names. And so Kamau is a Kikuyu name. And in Kenya, Kamau, naming your kid Kamau is like naming your kid, uh, you know, Michael here. Mm. It's a very common name, mm. in, especially around Nairobi. I'm glad I asked you. That's an interesting uh, derivation of the name. Well, you know, one of the things that struck me, maybe it was when you were talking in an interview on the radio, you said that you felt for a long time you weren't black enough and that even other other black people said you weren't black enough. Mm-hmm. What, do you, what do you think that means? What does it well, mean th- to you? I blame my mom for making us watch so much MASH as a kid. That was not America's <laughs> most popular black show in the 70s. We should have been watching more Good Times than the Jeffersons. <laughs> yeah, right. And then you'd talk television black. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> and to be clear, we watched plenty of Jeffersons and Good Times. But uh, I think that I was an only child. We moved around a lot. I think I just sort of developed, like sort of followed my own nose and danced to the beat of my own drummer. And then I would show up in places where... You know, and also at my age, I'm basically the exact age of hip hop in America, and I just wasn't listening to it as a kid in the same way that that felt like every black person around me was. I was really more interested in TV comedians. Like that was my that was my hip hop. You know, so mm-hmm. I would often find myself in conversations where there were references I didn't get or things I didn't know as well, or and I would get quiet. And then sometimes when black people would sort of not confront me, but really directly ask me questions, I had to admit that I didn't listen to hip hop or I didn't know those things. You know, it's your kid. You're in elementary school and high school. You know, it's that it's the time when kids kids are trying to define themselves, and a lot of times yeah. kids define themselves about wh- that they're better than other people around them. And so I felt like I wasn't doing black right as a kid a lot of times, up and through probably college, beginning of college. Yeah, I the reason it caught my ear is that the idea of not being black enough sounds to me like there's the fear of being absorbed too much into the white culture. And yes. yet your show is about all the cultural attributes we live among, finding yes. a way to to get to know one another and absorb it, absorb one another into one another's lives. And those two ideas sound a little bit in conflict, or maybe it's maybe it's uh, it's stirring the pot and not actual conflict. But do, does doesn't your show kind of move us toward? meeting meeting that that other person, that other part of the culture? I mean, I hope so. And I mean, you know, let me be clear. To this day, there are still black people, because I'm on social media a good bit, that think I'm not black enough because I'm a black man who's married to a white woman. Mm-hmm. And because a lot of the things I do on the show are... There, I'm not always coming from the black perspective. You know, I'm not mm-hmm. always, I'm not always, you know, I'm, I definitely define myself as a black man, but I'm like, you know, I'm also trying to reach out to, you know, a lot of black people were mad that I put the KKK on TV. You know what I'm saying? And then, mm-hmm. so I'm still ex- getting that criticism. It's just, it doesn't hit me in the same way anymore because I do, I get as an, ag- as an adult who's married with three kids and who really believes I'm doing good work in the world, I get to define what black is for me. And I understand that now. I didn't understand it then. But I also think it is, as a person who moved around a lot, as I've said, it's really important for me to meet lots of different types of people and understand when I was a kid, there was the idea that we were the melting pot. And it was like, no, we're not trying to melt into each other. Mm-hmm. We're just trying to respect each other. And if you want to be a sick American over there, that's great. And I'll be a black American married to a white woman with, <laughs> with three mixed race kids here. And that's fine. And it's good that I know about you so that when I see you, I'm not afraid of you or I'm not suspicious of you or I understand you, you know. So it's not about us all melting together. It's just about us respecting and creating space for each other. Terry Gross, I think, asked you about the the head head of PR at Netflix, I think, who had said the 
what everybody calls the N-word and, oh, yeah. and got fired for it. Yeah. And I think you were you were interested in how quickly that firing took place. But one of the things that, it, that I thought about was how we who are – not considered to have color, although it seems to me everybody's got some color. No, everybody, everybody's, everybody's got, got some color, but yes. Everybody's got flesh tone. Yes. <laughs> that that peach crayon. Yeah, right. So we're sort of corralled into um, not go, not objecting when it happens. And it, mm-hmm. it, it's not, it's in a way, it's good we've reached a point where everybody said immediately, you can't talk like that. So yeah. casually, yes. but I I remember so clearly a moment fifty years ago when late at night I parked my car and I saw somebody trying to break into another car and a, a block later there was a police car so I said I th- I think there's somebody down the street trying to break into a car and he said uh, what color is he uh-huh. and I. I don't know what term I used, black or whatever, yeah. whatever was the popular term at the time, at the time. Yeah. only because I'd been asked. But it was a little a little light went off in my head at that. Then the guy mm-hmm. gets on the radio, the policeman gets on the radio and said, we're at the corner of such and such, and there's a nigger breaking into the car. Yeah. And now, I, I wasn't the guy in the boardroom with the Netflix guy who, who yeah. used that word. I'm standing yeah. on the street in the middle of the night next to a cop who's yeah. carrying a gun. Mm-hmm. And I I didn't I was like a deer in the headlights. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what to say or do. Yeah. But I was sort of in a way silently coerced into going along with it. Yes, yes. And I I've been I've felt bad about that all my life because I would have liked to have had the courage to say something. Uh officer, we <laughs> <laughs> we don't use officer put down your uh your, yeah. your cv radio and let's talk let's have a diversity training seminar <laughs> yeah <laughs> while that so guy maybe I, does th- maybe that's, does, a, doesn't steal that's that car. a question that i imagine you have to worry about all the time is people who believe they're of goodwill and and you could say yeah. are of goodwill yeah but don't don't stir anything up yeah i, I mean i think that that's i live in the bay area which is the probably the good intentions capital of the United States of America, you know, like, <laughs> like, and, and a lot of those good intentions are not actually, you know, leading to action or they're not being used appropriately. So I think it, it sort of makes sense that I live here because every day I'm sort of like trying to like sort of correct people's past or sort of, or learn about other people's past so I can correct my own path. It's, it's, it's a constant thing that I think if I was living where my dad lived in Mobile, Alabama, I would be dealing with, there's just different levels of concern there and different ways in which people, the culture moves. So for me, I, and I say this to people all the time, the important thing isn't always what you do in that moment. The important thing is what you do in the following moments. Like, yes. Oh, go ahead. What, what do you mean by that? That's interesting. That, you know, there's times, and this is, happens all the time with, with black people, like if a cop does something that you think is racist or you think is, you know, sometimes you just want to get out of the situation alive. You know what I mean? You just yeah. want to like, let me, let me move out of this. Let me get out of the situation. And then there are multiple things you can do later. You can call the precinct. You can write a blog. You can, you can go to the ACLU. There's all these things. You can talk to people in the community about it. You can organize a group. There's all these things you can do later to make up for that moment that you felt like I did. I wasn't my best self in that moment. I think sometimes people think if I wasn't my best self in that moment, then the moment's lost, and that's just. But not, what can you do? I don't. I, I'm maybe I'm missing it. What What can you do in the next moment? You have an opportunity to connect with people in your community. I don't know where you were at work or in Hollywood or wherever to go. No, I was a poor actor out of work. Well, there you go. But I'm saying you can if you have a conversation with another poor actor out of work in that community about like, hey, I saw this cop uh, say this thing and yeah. it made me feel this way. How? What do you think about that? You start to change the conversation. Yeah. You start to you start to initiate new conversations. It's not always about like, well, I guess we got to have a boycott and I guess we got to march on Washington. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, they, you know, that's eventually it gets there sometimes, but I think sometimes it's about like not don't steer clear from those uncomfortable conversations with those people around you, you know. 
that I think sometimes we just sort of we bury that stuff inside of ourselves and just it becomes that story like you said that you felt bad about for 50 years. But let's say you would talk to a couple people in your community about it. Let's say one of them was like, you know, I know that cop. He said something to me like that. And then you go, mm-hmm. wait a minute. This is bigger than I thought it was. We need to go to the precinct. You know what I mean? There's just any number of things that you can do in those moments to or also. And this is another thing you can do. You can go. The next time that happens or anything mm. like that happens, I'm going to do something different. You know what I mean? Be I think prepared. It's like, the idea prepared. of being prepared for something like that really appeals to me yeah. because it's too late to start figuring out a strategy during an emergency. Yes, yes, yes. And, and that, I think that's, that's an emergency. And as a stand-up comedian, this to me is exactly why I do stand-up comedy. I wish I'd been funnier in the moment. Oh, I thought of something funny to say later. I'll go say it on stage and pretend like I said that. <laughs> so I'm very I'm who's going to know? The, yeah, who's going to know? That's what I. Yeah, I said it. <laughs> at a certain point, Kamal began to notice as a comedian that no matter how much the audience laughed at his jokes, there was still something missing from his act. He himself wasn't fully there. The story of how he changed his style of comedy and connected with the audience more is himself when we come back. On December 14th, 2020, End Blindness will make history by awarding the first ever Sanford and Sue Greenberg Prize to End Blindness. 13 pioneering scientists will share $3 million in prizes for their groundbreaking scientific and medical contributions to end blindness permanently and universally. The Greenberg Prize Awards Ceremony, which will stream online, brings together luminaries from arts, sciences, entertainment, and politics, including Art Garfunkel, Margaret Atwood, Al Gore, Michael Bloomberg, and more. The award ceremony will also feature a moving tribute to the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a longtime supporter of the end blindness movement including extensive footage of Justice Ginsburg reading from Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, the memoir of End Blindness 2020 co-founder Sanford D. Greenberg. If you want to learn more about End Blindness, you can read about it in Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. And for a special treat, you can listen to the book read by Art Garfunkel. For more, go to SanfordGreenberg.com. Join us on December 14th, 2020 at 7 p.m. Eastern at www.EndBlindness2020.com to be a part of this historic moment. That's endblindness2020.com. This is clear and vivid, and now back to my conversation with W. Kamau Bell. Tell me how you, did you make a a transition from being a conventional stand-up comic to one with social conscience at the forefront like this? Yeah, I mean, I did, but I don't know that I thought of it that way. I just, I think at the time, I felt it was like I was drowning in not, I was drowning in failure, and I was like, I need to figure out a way to not drown in failure. <laughs> like it was really. What like was a your thing material about? I was just panning for punchlines. Like it was oh, like yeah. I was just like, what if that's funny? I'll say it, whether I really care about it or not. You know? Yeah. And then you sort of, but what happens is the audience watches you perform, even if you perform for an hour, they don't really have a sense of who you are. I could headline a night, but it wasn't like I afterwards anybody cared about like what are you doing next you know i mean sure i had some fans but it wasn't there was there was nothing building and at that point i was in my early 30s and i was like at some point you go is this is this what i do for a living am i just an Mm. okay comedian and so so what did you do then what did you how did you change it basically i i after a, a series of bad shows i did it did and i just was like reaching for jokes it didn't go well i took a month or so off and was like am i maybe i'm quitting maybe i don't want to do this anymore and then in that space i was like well if you didn't quit, if you could do anything you wanted to do, let's in my mind is like, let's pretend you're already famous. What would you be doing? Mm. And at that moment, like some, it just sort of came to me. I would want to do a show like John Stewart does on the daily show, but I would make it about race and racism. Mm. And then you sort of go, well, you can't, okay, but you can't do that because you can't get a TV show. So what's the, what's the thing you can do now? So I rented a theater. I got my, I used my, I got a, I borrowed a friend's projector. I plugged my, my uh, computer up to it. I started learning how to do keynote and PowerPoint, even though I didn't know how to do it. Uh, 
my the first show, my we forgot to get a stand for the projector, so my wife sat with the projector in her lap, burning her legs. <laughs> <laughs> and she was That's great. She was, yeah, she was my girlfriend at the time, but I was like, I think I should marry her someday. So yeah. <laughs> she, she can hold a heavy thing. Yeah, she can hold a heavy hot thing in her lap for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> and I just sort of taught myself how to do PowerPoint and taught myself how to make these slides and and did it once a month for four months. And by the end of that time, media in San Francisco suddenly knew the, knew my name and the shows were selling out. Little black box theaters that had like 50, 60 people, but they were selling out. And so I was aware you were doing a kind of a funny lecture, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, it was like, it was a, you called it a one man show. It was called The W. Kamal Bell Curve, Ending Racism in About an Hour. And if, you, <laughs> and if you brought a friend of a different race, you got in two for one, which we actually did. <laughs> it seems that hooking up with getting to, now hooking up is not a word you can use anymore. Sorry, I didn't mean that. <laughs> no, that's all right. <laughs> Connecting with another person. Uh, and finding out about their lives is a good warm up, warming up experience for both people, and one that sounds to me like will bring us together. It's it's very much yeah. what your show is about. Yeah, but it's not that easy to do. I mean, when when I was a kid, there were jokes about take a black person to lunch, take a Jew to lunch. <laughs> yeah, know, that yeah, was yeah. like. A program they had. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Lenny, one of his Lenny Bruce, one of Lenny Bruce's early great jokes was how to relax your colored friends at parties. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, as long as it seems like an excursion to a foreign country, that's not going to get us very far, it seems to me. But I do think that, like, we are surrounded by more information than we've ever been surrounded by in our in the history of the world. And, and it'll some be of more it's from- true. Some of it's true, yeah. And there'll be more information tomorrow, and some of that will be true. And so there's any number of ways for you to to get this information without confronting that person on the subway. Tell me why you wear that thing on your head. I think that's yeah. not the way to go about it. Yeah, it's probably not. <laughs> but and that, you, that could apply to any number of faiths or lifestyles, why you wear that thing on your head. That could be its own show. When you were talking about all the information that's coming at us, I, I was remembering the line. I don't know who wrote this, but I love it. Don't forget that Abraham Lincoln said, you can't trust the internet. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) You you know, we can't settle on a name. It's very interesting to me. I wonder what you think of this. I think of this every once in a while. We can't settle on being able to talk about somebody without referring to race, if there's any trace of what I guess you could call loosely non-white um, heritage, mm-hmm. if somebody some someplace in the recent past had a had a black ancestor, that person is referred to publicly as black. You know, the, the interesting thing to me about all of this is that we all came out of Africa. All our yes. ancestors did. Yeah. So everybody, every single person living in America is African American. <laughs> That's if you. It, a lot of people have a hard time believing this, and and you know, and it, I mean, I think the thing it, this all comes down to, and I talk about this in my solo show, The Bell Curve, is that race isn't real. Like it, you know, and a lot of people, it's a social construct, which is why it changes all the time because mm. society makes up new rules for what it needs at the time. So you know. There was a point at which my daughters, who are I'm black and my daughter's mom is white, they would have been called mulattoes, and that wouldn't have been an insult. Yeah, that was just yeah. what they were called. So you have three daughters. Mm-hmm. How how do they identify themselves? Well, the oldest one is Sammy, is seven, and she has grown up always sort of understanding that no matter her skin color, and it has sort of changed and gotten darker over time, that she's black and mixed race, even though her mom is white. And her mm-hmm. dad is black. She understands that she's black and mixed race. But my my four-year-old is way lighter than Sammy. She's not as light as her mom. And she's really – Sam. I've seen Sammy try to explain to her that she's black. And Juno will go, no, I'm not black because she looks at her skin and her skin is very light. And so it's this thing where it's like we have to just keep having a constant conversation about – what you think you are is one thing, or how you define yourself is one thing, how the world defines you is another thing, and also how we and our family define ourselves. It could be a third thing. I realized with Juno, my four-year-old, like we have to keep having that conversation because she, at some point, 
even if she passes for white, as we say in the community, if she is somebody who is light enough that white people think she's white, she will find herself in a position where somebody will challenge her on that once they find out who her parents are or once they sort of go, wait a minute, I don't know if you look white to me. So for me, it's just I think parents are often afraid of those conversations, not black parents, not parents of color. But I feel like with with me and my wife, we just lean into those conversations because now we have our third daughter who at this point is darker than both our daughters. And it's like, well, where is she going to settle? What is? And we mm-hmm. also know the world will treat them all differently. Juno will have some light skin privilege that Sammy doesn't have. But then Sammy will still be lighter than me, and so she'll get privilege that I don't get. You know what I mean? So it's and what like, about what about all their acceptance in the black community? Uh, my, my wife talks about this all the time, that even Juno, who's the lightest of all three of them, when she's in the world with them, that black women will regularly look at Juno and recognize her as black and then look at my wife with like a right on sister. <laughs> like they will, they can see, and that's the thing about Juno, black people can tell she's black. And so they will see it in her and, and black people are used to accepting, not that we don't have color problems and issues of shade, but we still are used to accepting in light skinned black people. Cause it's just the nature of how black people's experience in this country evolved is the nicest way I can put it. You reminded me when you talked about your wife out with your daughter. What was sounded like a really unusual experience you had confronting racism when you were with your daughter. What was that? It was me and my wife, and actually Juno was thirteen weeks old, and we were. My wife was sitting at a sidewalk at a sidewalk cafe uh, with four with three other white women who had white looking babies, and I went to the cafe to say hello to my wife and meet her friends. This was in Berkeley, California. Again, the Best intentions, capital of the of the country, and s- somebody inside the cafe knocked on the window and told, and basically from inside the cafe told me to scram because they thought I was harassing my wife and my daughter and her friends. Mm. And again, my wife's white, her friends all were white looking, the kids were all white looking, and I'd been there for you know a minute talking to them and showing them, ironically showing them this book I just bought, a kid's book about the loving couple who got the interracial marriage law struck down in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, if, if it had been a script, you would have said, cut that part out, that's too much. Yeah, <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> You'd have been like, that's that's too on the nose, Kamal. That's, so that's, I'm, I'm yeah. interested, now that, you, now that you set the scene, I'm interested in how you communicated. What did you do? What did you say? You know, it's again, it's a, it's very similar to the moment that you had with that cop. Like, if I had been, woken up that day saying, today at 1130, I'm going to be confronted by a white person with racism, I would have had a whole, you know, <laughs> I would have had a whole Denzel Washington speech prepared. <laughs> right, the set piece of the movie. Right? Yeah, exactly. I would have had the, yeah, the clip they played at the Oscars. <laughs> I'd have been ready to go. But in that moment, I was so, and this happens to a lot of times, this happens to people of color, it happens to gay people, happens to trans folks, happens to people in the disability community, happens to Jewish people, I'm sure, where you get, you, you're experiencing the hatred that your identity creates and you get embarrassed or ashamed for a second. Mm. Like there's this internalized sort of like oppression where you're like, oh, maybe I did do the wrong thing. Have I done something? Have I said something wrong? That for a second starts to overwhelm your ability to be like, this is not, this is bullshit. If that's, I'm sorry. So what, that's okay. What, what did you do uh, after? Did, were you able to apply your own advice and uh, think of a strategy for what you do next time? We, you know what? We, so in that moment, me and my wife got up and left. My wife went back and confronted the co- the worker who had told us to leave. So she, in that moment, did have a, a Meryl Streep moment, I'll say. She's a white lady. <laughs> uh, she got a good Oscar clip out of it. Yeah. <laughs> but, and then we left, and then we went home, and we start, first we, like, tried to contact the cafe to be like, hey, I don't know what happened. You should know about this. They never got back to us. Then we wrote a blog about it that ended up being picked up by, you know, sort of like it became like one of those viral stories that goes through on Facebook and local media did stories about it. And then we had a big like a community meeting at this middle school, uh, middle school gymnasium with the owner of the coffee shop, a bunch of activists and and academics to talk about microaggressions, which is a way of saying racism that doesn't kill you. And so. We did try to go do the thing I said about what happens next yeah. and sort of try to like, but ultimately the coffee shop, as soon as the press passed, the coffee shop sort of went back to business as usual and stopped answering my emails. And then in the wake of the Starbucks thing, when those three, those two black guys got arrested at Starbucks, hmm. I wrote about it again to go, hey, it doesn't matter what Starbucks says they're going to do now because I had an experience like this and eventually the coffee shop stopped doing anything. And then the coffee shop got so much bad press that they decided to shut down 
and then a few weeks later reopen under a new name. <laughs> so, mm. like, it, so, <laughs> and the lesson for me is that it's not it, you. It's not one. It's not like it's not about what you do next. It's about what you do next, and then after that, and then after that, and then after that. Like I'm still sort of engaged in this. You can't just go. Well, we wrapped that up. You know, it's like the March on Washington had to be a huge undertaking to plan, and Martin Luther King didn't finish it and go. Whew, good thing we ended that racism. <laughs> like you, you have to he was already working on the poor people's march and already talking about Vietnam and things like that. So there's it's not just one it's not just about the follow up phone call, it's about all the follow ups you have to do. Yeah, the the idea that we rally around a flag or around a skin color or a way of talking or a philosophy and approach to life, it sounds to me like our identities are defined and I'm just guessing, but it sounds like our identities are defined by a number of things. And if we get really good at not being so worried about the color of our skin, we'll still have things like you're a conservative and I'm a liberal and that kind of thing. Well, yeah, we're human beings. I mean, you know, as much as we sort of bristle against categories, we all like to have, create our own identities. You know what I mean? Like, and at some point, you become proud of who you, if you work hard enough, you become proud of what your identity means. You know what I mean? Like, you mm -hmm. know, Alan Alda, that's a brand now. It's not just you. Like, it's, it's, like, it's, a, it's a way in which to describe people how they are in the world. You know, if you say something's Alan Alda-ish, you go, oh, sensitive and smart <laughs> you know, like, and funny. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, so I think that we like having identity and we like defining ourselves. The problem is in this country is that for many people, we have been defined by people who are outside of us. Yeah. So well, well know, in a way, we pretty much all are. I mean, I, I have to, and you, you probably do, have to cope with a public perception of myself. Yes. That isn't what I seem to experience from the inside. <laughs> yeah. No, my, my wife is not like you're so funny all the time. Yeah. So, right. So, I, my so, wife used to go crazy. You know, when when Mash was really popular. Uh, and people would say, is he, the, is he that funny at home? <laughs> this has crossed my mind a few times. Doing the show where you personally expose yourself to different cultures, different ways of looking at things, different cultural aspects of the whole world we live in, have you found yourself changing in any way toward other people? Yeah, I mean, I'd say it's funny. It's it's one of our most popular episodes by ratings, which is interesting because it was more popular than the Ku Klux Klan episode, but it was the episode we did in Appalachia. Uh, and that was an episode that I went to initially sort of feeling very sort of like it might have a Klan feeling to it. Not that those people are racist like the Klan, but they certainly don't want to see a big city black guy coming in talking about, tell me about what it's like to be poor. You know what I mean? So <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> as I get into my SUV and pull away. Uh, <laughs> what happened between you and them on a personal level? Well, it was the height of the election. Like, so we saw lots of Trump for president signs. And then we saw lots of homemade Hillary for prison signs around. <laughs> and that was the point at which people like me who had been been around the country were like, I don't know if this is going to go exactly the way we think it's going to. Uh, not to say I predicted it, but I just felt like there's a lot more Trump out here than people in Berkeley believe there is. So, like, I was sort of afraid that I would go into every conversation and have to deal with the Trump, the the Trump, the elephant in the room, literally and figuratively. <laughs> yes. and, and it ended up, we just talked about, like, how... You know, they knew coal was a way of the past. They didn't want – they're like, we love the environment here because we hunt and we like to go out. So we like to go outside. We like to camp. So we don't want to destroy the environment with our jobs. We just happen to also need jobs. And so the conversations became about things that people – like I did an episode about with gang members on the south side of Chicago. The people in Appalachia and south side of Chicago want the same things. They want better jobs. They want higher paying jobs. They want better schools for their kids. They want police that that effectively protect their communities. But the problem is, is that we get behind the team sport of politics. And I think that's what I learned a lot is that if we can get away from the team sport nature of politics in our current political system, we can actually we could probably get things done and find out that people in Appalachia have a lot more in common with people on the south side of Chicago than President Trump wants us to believe. Yeah, it, it really does seem to come down to that. Every grand national or international issue really comes down to what are you struggling with in mm -hmm. your hometown? Yeah, I mean, that's it's really made me focus more in local politics than I did before. Like, because I understand, like, it's it's why it's such a big deal now that, like, 
like all these like women of color are are winning these primaries because it's like for a long time people of color felt frozen out of a lot of politics. But it's like, yeah, we need to stop saying to little kids, you can be the president when you grow up. No, 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 be the mayor. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, be the, right. <laughs> be the comptroller. You know, like I think that that's where it really that that's where you can really make some big changes. I don't mean to press you on this, but I'm I'm curious. Was there anybody that you felt warmly toward? that you think about as later on whether or not you make contact with them anymore? I mean, every—it's funny. Yes, many people. I Sometimes I feel like almost like a bad uncle who, like, came through and brought Christmas one year and then didn't come back. Like, I just feel yeah. like—because there's a the show makes a big impact on people's lives. And then after the show airs, it makes a big impact on people's lives. But there's so many people that there's, like—you I, I, know— I, I keep sort of pitching, like, can we do a follow-up episode? Because I know the only way I'm going to see these people, for the most part, is if I go back with cameras, you know. I'm yeah. not going to just end up in Barrow, Alaska again, you know. So, And so for me, there's like a there's a young woman, Maria, who in our first episode from the first season, we did we did about uh, East L.A. and Boyle Heights, like about the, the Mexican Amer- mostly Mexican-American communities there, talking about undocumented people, and Maria is undocumented. And just got into college at SF State. Now, SF State is not that far from me because I'm in the East Bay and that's in San Francisco. And I'm like, maybe Maria's over there, you know? Mm-hmm. How is she doing? It's been like three years. She's probably a senior now, you know? So I think about that a lot about like wishing I could reconnect with these people, but not really. And people think like, people ask me on Twitter, how's that person doing? I don't even have their information most of the time because the producers have all that stuff. Yeah. But in one way with San Quentin, we did an episode about San Quentin in the first season. And I've been back to San Quentin three times since we did the episode. What, just uh, to host, have lunch? Well, I went back once to screen the episode. Then I went back again to co-host a talent show with one of the guys who was in the episode. Uh. And, you know, and I, then I went back for something. I Maybe it's twice, but I keep, and they keep sending me invites to go back. And I, so that's just, San Quentin is, again, it's like a half hour from my house. It's like, so it's easy to get to, but I feel like I haven't been back enough. And the guy's who I talked to in the episode, most most of them are still there because they're in prison for life. So it's like mm. I think about these I think about these people a lot and my schedule is so busy and then you just go, I gotta figure out a way to carve out some time or figure out a way to reconnect us with those people. Well, I, this has been really great. I've had a really good time with you. Thank you for being on the show. And I wanna ask you, I don't know if you know we do this, if it's okay with you, there I, I have seven quick questions hoping to get seven quick answers, and they're mostly sure. about communicating in in sometimes weird ways. Are you okay with that? Sure. Okay, number one, number one, first question, what do you wish you really understood? Uh, Spanish. Oh, well, that doesn't sound too hard to do. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It's all right, silly. <laughs> number two, what do you wish other people understood about you? Uh... Uh, uh, it's such a selfish thing. Uh, what do people wish understood? I just want to be funny. <laughs> I, just be, <laughs> I just want to be funny, despite all the 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 uh, things around my career. I actually just I am still a stand up comedian who wants to get the laughs. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? The strangest question anyone has ever asked me. Uh, it's <laughs> a good question. Uh, somebody asked me one time on Twitter, cause we did a segment of United Shades in Portland where I went to a cuddle spot where it was like a, it's like a, instead of a massage parlor, you, uh, there was a woman who you cuddle with her for 45 minutes as what? a way to reconnect. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, somebody on Twitter was like, are you aware you're committing adultery? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, but my wife knew it doesn't matter. You <laughs> <laughs> She's you, laughing you, at the episode right now. Oh, well, oh, okay. Oh. Yeah. I'm still getting over that. Yeah. How, here's the next question. How do you stop a compulsive talker? You you refused you you actually just stop talking completely and get so quiet that they run out of steam. Uh, that's never worked for me. So <laughs> I find if you get really like you like you get intentionally quiet, like you don't even say mm-hmm. You don't. You just oh, you yeah. Maybe like, that's just, just yeah. The, you okay. completely shut down. You just sort of like like a computer who goes to sleep. You just completely like and you don't move at all. Like I find this because I have interviews like this that eventually they just sort of bup, 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 bah because <laughs> they they need to know they need to see you reacting. You just stop reacting. Uh, that's that's a very practical answer. Okay, here's number five. Is there anyone you just can't feel empathy for? President Donald John Trump. 
There's okay. not a piece of me that will ever feel any empathy for him or whatever he goes through. Number six, how do you like to deliver bad news? In person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon? <laughs> Uh, I think it's, if you can't, how do I like to deliver bad news? Yeah, how do you news? like to? We know what you're supposed to do. <sighs> Over the, uh, I, 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 got, I don't, I, I got to go to the phone. I, let's go to the phones. Okay. <laughs> to sound like an <laughs> old right. school AM radio talk show. I got, I go to the phone. I feel like that's the, because if you do it, if you do it like uh, by any other way that's not the phone, like, you know, I can't do it in person, but I like to do it over the phone, but you should do it in person. Okay. Final question. What, if anything, would make you end a friendship? Uh, what would make me end a friendship? Uh, lack of kindness. Toward you or anybody? Actually, towards the world. <laughs> like, I think that if, <laughs> if I really was with somebody who I felt like was just being like, like if I, I don't think I could have a friend who's like, I always litter. I don't think I could, even though I'm not, that's not my issue. I would be like, yeah, that's, like, we can't do that. Yeah, you litter occasionally. That's one thing. We can't do it all the time. I think a lack of like. Okay, so, so we, we boiled it down to littering. Yeah, littering. Yeah. Don't litter. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> That's my number one issue. <laughs> Alan Alda talks with W. Kamau Bell about littering for, <laughs> Thank for you. a half hour. Thank you so much. I needed a trailer for this. Thank you. It was great talking to you to come out. Thank you. Thank you. Alan, before you go, can I bring my mom in here just to say hello to you? Oh, that would be great. Thank you. <laughs> She's she. Um, we moved her out here about uh, three months ago, and so last night I was like, you need to come with me to the recording studio tomorrow. And she said, why? And I said, Alan Alda. And she's like, I'll be there. So this is the <laughs> mom who, who, who made me watch MASH, and I loved it. And here, hold on, I'm going to get her the earphone so she can talk to you. Come on, Ma. Hi. Hi. Oh, it's so nice to meet you. It's so nice to meet you. Do you mind, do you mind being a, a, a little surprise guest on the podcast and, and answer a couple <laughs> of questions? This is a dream. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> what the obvious question was? Kamal funny all his life. Absolutely. <laughs> what kind of thing? What kind of things would he do? Would he make the whole family laugh? Would he entertain the family at, at uh, you know no, uh, holidays no. and things? He would only do funny things with me. And when I tried to get him to do it for other people, he absolutely refused. I think even then, he decided he wanted to be paid for being funny. <laughs> what? When? When did he first? When did he first perform in front of other people? And were you there for that? No. As a matter of fact, I think he was going to open mics for quite a while before he even told me about it. Was that he was too? Why? Why was that? Come, come out. Why? Why? Why didn't you tell your mom about that? Because I didn't want to suck in front of my mom. <laughs> <laughs> she, I knew she really thought I was funny. She's always been clear about the fact that she thinks I'm funny, and so she always was like, "Let me would let me watch Saturday Night Live when I was a little kid." After Mash went off, we watched Saturday Night Live, and uh, and I just knew that she thought I was funny. So I was like, I can't have my mom come out and see me bomb because she actually believes I'm funny. So it, I think it was about two months before I let her come and see me perform in a coffee shop that held about 25 people. So most funny people that I've known or heard of became funny because they followed the style of somebody in the family, a mother, a father, an uncle. Who do you think Kamal was following in the footsteps of was it you that's what my friends told me because i was always so surprised at how funny kamal was and several of my friends said janet he's just like you so i had no idea i was funny <laughs> my mom says things that hurts people's feelings and then the people who hear that think it's very funny that's the kind of humor my mom has it's a very cutting mean humor that other people she's like she's more I, really it, it's more like chris rock is her kid she's more like that Listen, it was really great to meet you and to talk with you both. Wait one second. Somebody's got a question for me. What, what's happening? I just want to say how much I have admired your feminism over the years. Oh, thanks so Long much. Long before anybody ever said me too, you were always speaking up for women, and I was aware of that and very happy about it. Well, I send you hugs. It was very nice to talk to you both. It made me feel good. Thank you, thank Thanks you, Alan. So this is a, this is a, this will certainly go as one of the highlights of my career. I really appreciate it. Much better than talking to the clan. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. W. Kamau Bell is a great comedic talent, and he's especially interesting as a communicator because of his ability to weave socio-political commentary into his humor. He's also a prolific writer and producer, and I hope you'll check out his book. It has the easy-to-remember title, The Awkward Thoughts of W. Kamau Bell, Tales of a Six-Foot-Four African-American Heterosexual Cisgender Left-Leaning Asthmatic Black and Proud Blurred Mama's Boy Dad and Stand-Up Comedian. I can't say that without taking a breath. W. Kamau Bell is the host and executive producer of the Emmy Award-winning CNN documentary series United Shades of America with W. Kamau Bell. And he recently made his Netflix debut with a new stand-up comedy special called Private School Negro. It's streaming now, so check that out on Netflix right now. This episode was produced by Graham Chedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. I'm on a trip to Toronto, but I wanted to call this in to make sure you know who's next in our series of conversations. I'll be talking with Rachel Ray, star chef, TV host, author, designer, and above all, a person who believes in the power of food and the cooking of food to make us better people. I try and write to make people feel successful about themselves in the kitchen. Mm. That's the part I want to communicate, is that you'll feel better if you do this a little more often. It'll make you happy. It'll fill up your soul. You'll feel good about yourself. You'll spend less money. You'll be healthier. You'll just feel better if you cook. Rachel Ray, who has a way of brightening everyone around her, joins us as we cook, eat, and explore together the power of food to connect and communicate. To listen to these conversations, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen.